Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 170 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The LLMD Takes on IG Live, an interview with Dr. Casey Kelly. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. So, folks, this is something new for us at Tick Bootcamp. We actually did our second and first recorded Instagram Live, and we decided because it was Dr. Casey Kelly and because she gave us so much gold that we would convert this Instagram Live into a podcast. And Rich, it's so hard to describe how much content is in this one-hour interview. We talked about all things Lyme, from pans to pandas to pots to MCAS to IV and oral antibiotics to herbs, acute versus chronic Lyme disease, Lyme in children versus Lyme in adults, mold, the MTHFR mutation, detox, and psychological Lyme flares, and so much more. And the best part is that Dr. Casey Kelly gave us specific tips and tricks to overcome all of these things that we discussed. So Matt, what's really exciting about the way Dr. Kelly handled all this is we actually put up a poll on our Instagram. We asked the community to give us a list of questions they wanted us to ask. We did not share them with Dr. Kelly before we brought her onto the podcast, or I should say onto the Instagram live, and she just knocked it out of the park. We peppered her with question after question after question after question, and she was just brilliant. So I'm really excited that this is going to be available to our podcast community in addition to our Instagram community. Without further ado, the LLMD takes on Instagram Live, Dr. Casey Kelly. All right. If anybody's watching, just sit tight because we are about to bring on Dr. Casey Kelly. We're about to bring in Rich. Here's Rich. And we're about to bring in... Casey Kelly, so sit tight. All right, so hi folks, and welcome to the Tick Boot Camp Instagram with Dr. Casey Kelly. I'd like to sort of take you behind the scenes before we invite Dr. Kelly in so you have a sense of what we're doing here today. What we wanted to do is we wanted to first invite Dr. Casey Kelly because uh, she's the doctor who brought me back to having faith in the medical community. As you probably know, uh, we started our podcast on our Instagram because Matt was sick from, uh, a, uh, from Lyme disease. And shortly after I worked with Matt on a, on a legal matter, I was bitten by a tick. I tried to get in to see my doctor when I finally got in to see uh, my doctor. Uh, unfortunately, I was met with incompetence. A year later, I was bitten by a tick again. And while I was in meltdown mode for a second time, one of the things that Matt said to me is, hey, Rich, you said that if anyone in your family ever got sick from Lyme disease, you'd go on a plane to Chicago and you would hire Dr. Kelly. Why aren't you working with Dr. Kelly? You're right, Matt. I have to call Dr. Kelly. So what I did is I called Dr. Kelly. We were, uh, we were able to do a remote appointment together, and, and it was the most thorough appointment I ever had in my 57 years on earth. I was really, really impressed with Dr. Kelly and the work that she did. And it, quite frankly, allowed me to regain faith in the medical community. So one of the things that Matt and I have done repeatedly is anytime anybody has asked us for a referral, and we only refer people who we have worked with, we always refer Dr. Kelly because she did such a great job for me, and I can speak specifically to that. So what we did is we wanted to do a, an Instagram Live this month. This is only the second one we've ever done. And who else would we invite other than Dr. Kelly? But we wanted this to be community-based. So what Matt did is he put up a poll, and on that poll, we came up with uh, a number of different people from around the world who have questions for Dr. Kelly. So what we're going to do in a couple of seconds is I'm going to bring out our clapper. We're going to get started <laughs> in a minute, and we're going to ask all of your questions and some of the follow-ups that we want to ask for Dr. Kelly. So without further ado, the Tick Boot Camp interview on Instagram Live <laughs> with our favorite doctor, Dr. Casey Kelly. Hey, and welcome, Dr. Dr. Casey Kelly. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for having me. What a great introduction. Thanks, guys. Yes, we're blessed to have you. So, Matt, why don't you start by asking questions, since I've been blabbing all day today, and I'm sure you're sick of hearing my voice. Why don't you ask Dr. Kelly our first question from our, our followers? For sure. So we're going we're gonna to start with the questions that we've gotten already from our questions on our story. And at the time, at the end, we're going to answer some of the live Q&As that we're seeing in the chat here. So... The first question we have is from Stephanie Smith at Holistic Heartbeats, and she wants to know, Dr. Kelly, how long does a tick have to be attached to really transmit Lyme disease? There's so many differing opinions out there. So what is, what is your thought on that? Yeah, there, there definitely is differing opinions out there. The longer it's attached, though, the more likely it is to transmit it. So if you find an engorged tick that's been there for a while, you have a higher likelihood. There are some tick-borne infections like Powassan virus that have been proven to transmit in as low as 10 minutes. So even if you don't necessarily get Lyme, you could get something else from a tick, even if it's attached just for a few minutes. So get it off as so, soon as possible. 
So Matt, if I could follow up with that. So Dr. Kelly, one of the things we've seen from some of the other folks that we've interviewed is that getting bitten by a tick doesn't necessarily convert from acute to chronic Lyme disease. And I think both Dr. Phillips and Dr. Rawls have both argued that there are some rare cases where you'll go from a, an acute situation to, an, to a chronic situation, one of which is if you're bitten by many ticks at the same time, where you're getting a large microbe load. And the second I think Dr. Rawls suggested is that he has treated some folks who, um, who had uh, been living in a, in, a, in a mold environment and, and gotten bitten by a tick, and then it went from acute to, lines, um, yeah, acute to chronic. So can you talk a little bit about the conversion from acute to chronic? Yeah, there's not necessarily a magic line to cross. The life cycle of the bacterium is about 28 days. So if you can treat it within the first 28 days, you're less likely to develop a chronic. But, you know, there are no rules with Lyme. It has its own, its own set of rule books that it follows. Um, and, you know, I think another, another instance where it might be an acute tick bite, but it becomes more chronic pretty quickly is if you've already been infected. So if you already have a Borrelia species in you and then you get bit by a tick with another Borrelia species or more virulent species or a co-infection, it could spur everything on to turn it into a more chronic state more quickly. Which of course suggests that if, if you are suffering from uh, chronic Lyme disease, uh, you have to be much more cautious about avoiding ticks, about checking for ticks. And of course, you have to be much more careful and make sure you get to your doctor, like Dr. Kelly, if you get bitten by a tick, so that you are not going to find yourself in a position where uh, a reinfection is going to cause you to uh, re-trigger your chronic condition. So, uh, Dr. Kelly, let me ask you the second question we have, and this is from Stuart, the legend of Stu, and he asked, why does Lyme often not show up when visiting the ER or a local doctor? Uh, as, as not show up on a, a blood test, if, if that's kind of the question that I understand, it's too soon. Um, and unfortunately, the testing that we have for Lyme really stinks. It's just not great. And one of the big tests that we use is a antibody test or the Western blot. And it takes a good six weeks for your antibodies to develop in the first place against the infection. So, and if you wait six weeks for your blood test to become positive, it's too late. That's definitely kind of crossing into the chronic world. So, you know, if they test you immediately when you have a tick bite, or if you come in and you have the, you know, the first flu-like illness or symptoms of it, you may come back totally normal because your body hasn't had a chance yet to develop those antibodies. They can do, the doctors can do a PCR test, which is a DNA test for the bacteria, but it's incredibly hard to find that in the blood. And so a negative PCR test does not rule things out, but sometimes that will develop more quickly. So you could possibly get a, a PCR test earlier on to try to find an acute infection. But yeah, we, we need better testing period to really try to get a better idea really quickly if, that's, if this is an acute tick and an acute Lyme going on for, and if we have chronic Lyme infection. Happening. So I'd like to follow up with this. Uh, I'm sorry. So one of the things that I did is I wanted to go for a recent tick bite um, uh, visit with Dr. Kelly. And Dr. Kelly, can you talk about what you think about when somebody is coming to you like I did after getting getting bitten by a tick? Yeah. So, you know, I kind of try to go through a whole quick history as much as possible. And, you know, have you ever had a tick bite before? Have you had reactions to tick bites? You know, where do you live? What kind of symptoms are you having? Because some people can really have no symptoms whatsoever. They just have the tick bite um, and they can be totally fine initially. And it could be two, four, six weeks later where they develop symptoms or not at all. They could have, have no symptoms from it. Um, and, you know, you want to try to look at also the overall status of the person as well as you have any other chronic diseases that might be playing a role or autoimmune diseases that are playing a role and just going to make things harder for you to be able to, to fight an infection such as Lyme disease. Yeah, it's, it's trying to juggle all of it. So trying to kind of get as much information as possible so that it, you can treat the patient individually to the fullest extent as, as quickly as possible. Dr. Kelly, as a follow-up to that, we have a question from Jacqueline at Mama Brain Frog, uh, and she asked, if you receive two clinical diagnoses of Lyme, should she even bother spending her money on a Lyme test? Because we know these Lyme tests aren't great, and also they don't test all of the strains and co-infections that could be transmitted from a tick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, actually, even if you read the CDC's website, it says Lyme is a clinical diagnosis. And a clinical diagnosis means you do a history and a physical exam. And if they are anywhere around where ticks might exist, which is PS 
everywhere, um, <laughs> then that's all it takes. And so, you know, I always use air quotes because if you are lucky enough to see a tick or lucky enough to get a bullseye rash, that is enough. That is pathognomonic. That is diagnosis of Lyme disease, full stop, get fully treated. You do not need any kind of blood work to prove that. You may want to do blood work later to follow up to see if your immune system is reacting and, 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 and those kind of things to, to make sure it's not developing into a chronic issue. But acutely, no, absolutely not. Just treat it. But do not pass go. Do not collect $100. Uh, just, just treat it. Yeah. So uh, as a follow-up to that, uh, Joanna uh, La Liberté and Kelly Witter um, are both asking a similar question, which is if they were going to seek a Lyme test, uh, what diagnostic testing uh, and co-infection testing do you think is the best? Well, it depends on acute versus chronic, as, as we've kind of talked about. But for chronic issues, you really want to do more of a Lyme literate lab. So you want to use a lab like IGNX or a medical diagnostic laboratory, Vibrant, Infecto. There are labs out there. This is all they do is deal with tick-borne infections. And so you want a lab who really knows what they're doing, who can really look at it. Quest, LabCorp, God love them. They're just not really good for tick-borne infections. So you need to do some deeper digging. And you can look for multiple co-infections through these tests. And I will do too. I will do regular blood work to look at different immune markers as well because I'm trying to get a picture of what's happening with the immune system and, and the pattern that it's showing to help heal things up too. But yeah, you got you to do some more digging with some Lyme, Lyme literate labs. Is that so a new word? Did I just coin that? <laughs> well, I like that. If, if you didn't, we'll give you credit for it anyway. Sounds good. <laughs> so back to Kelly, can you talk to us more about, we often get questions about the difference between Igenix labs and a lab like Armin Labs and maybe a lab like DNA Connection. So the urine testing versus blood testing and which is better. And in your professional opinion, is, is a blood test better than a urine test or are they just really equally different and, and one is not better than the other? Yeah, they're all very, very different. I mean, Igenix has fantastic reputation and fantastic standards and, and they do a really good job. Um, Armin Labs and Infecto Labs do T-cell testing. It's called an Ellie spot. So they are looking at different white blood cell reactions. So not antibodies, but different kinds of reactions. So it can give you a more complete picture. And so often I'll do both, the, the IgenX and, and an Infecto Lab. And the DNA connections is a urine test. And that is looking for the DNA fragments of the different infections in the urine. That should, in theory, tell you if it's a little more reactive or not. Um, I also think that that's great, though, in kids, because it can be so hard to grip, <laughs> to draw blood in little kids. And so just especially when you need to do it repeatedly, um, the urine testing can be just so much easier. And so any way I can, any way that works that we can figure out the combination. And, you know, sometimes you just have to keep testing. And sometimes the only time it really shows up is in the, in the urine test, for example. So, Yeah. So Dr. Kelly, our next question is from Joyce Braun, who asked, you know, how do you find the best treatment approach tailored to each patient? Because we know what works for me may not work for you and may not work for Rich. How do you as a Lyme litter professional determine what treatment to start me with versus maybe Rich, let's say? Mm -hmm. I think this is where the integrative and functional medicine background comes in extremely handy because my view of each person is very unique. So every person is different and their terrain that the infections are growing in is different. So if somebody has a history of an autoimmune disease or they have had gut issues for 15 years or uh, they have diabetes, you know, their system is just going to react differently. And, you know, if you have Lyme alone or if you have Lyme plus Babesia or if you have Lyme plus Babesia and a viral reactivation, they all need to be treated differently and, you know, throw mold on top of it and mast cell dysfunction. So I think that's part of why Lyme has eluded a lot of doctors for so long is because it's not easy. It's complicated. It's complex. It's this chronic ongoing brewing issue. And at the end of the day, it's not really an infection. It's a host immune problem, which is so much more complex. If I could just give people an antibiotic for two weeks and be done with it, That'd be amazing. That'd be great. I'd also probably be bored. You know, this is you. That's yeah. And I'm biased because I'm an integrative doc. But I really think that we have the advantage here because these things are so complex and so chronic and manifest differently. Lyme is the great mimicker, right? So it can show up as an MS in one person or 
uh, fibromyalgia in another person or rheumatoid arthritis like symptoms, right? And each of those require different treatment protocols too. So yeah, there's not a perfect algorithm. It's, it's case by case, as we Dr. say. Kelly, though, <laughs> you, you, you just said something that really sparked interest here because we just had a, another Lyme doctor on our podcast earlier this morning who said that it's really not an immune complex Lyme disease. The immune system is responding properly to, let's say, maybe a parasite in the brain and that it's often misconstrued as an autoimmune condition. So do you think that there are cases where it's a proper immune response into to something that we're not familiar with? Or do you think that it really is truly an autoimmune complex for late stage Lyme? I, I think a lot of people present with an autoimmune picture. And is it Lyme spurring that on? Yeah, I think Lyme drives that. Is the immune system wrong for reacting that way? No, not necessarily, you know, uh, it's just, you know, and that's kind of goes to everyone's going to, their immune system's going to react differently. And that's what I mean too when I say it's a host immune issue. So it's an immune system imbalance. It's an immune system dysfunction. It, there, you know, and, and a lot of what I do is spend a lot of time trying to rebalance that and get the immune system working better for the patient. So it stops attacking them and starts attacking the infections. And that's hard work. It's really complicated because there's a lot of layers and mold and other things you have to unpack to get it there. Yeah. Dr. Kelly, our next question comes from Kelsey Cunniff and she asks, are antibiotics always um, the best treatment or are herbal alternatives better when it comes to Lyme disease? I'm not sure there's a better or worse. They're just different. And, you know, if someone comes in with a tick bite, I'm going to give antibiotics. I just am typically just going to use prescriptions unless that person is just vehemently opposed to it because that is shown to work in that situation. But for chronic issues, herbs are a wonderful option because herbs are antibiotics. They're antibiotic herbs, but herbs also help to reset and rebalance that immune system in ways that the prescriptions cannot. And especially if someone's got a, a really disrupted gut or, you know, dysbio, you know, happening, adding antibiotics to the mix can sometimes make things a lot worse. So I like herbal antibiotics. They're very potent. They cause a lot of herxing and can cause some big problems. There's a lot of in vitro studies now that show that these herbal um, antimicrobials can get to the cystic, deeper-rooted parts of the infection. So they work. They're effective. And they can sometimes just be a lot easier on the system as a whole. So I'm not sure that better or worse is the right word, but they're just different options. And if one doesn't work, sometimes you have to try something else. So the next question is from one of our favorite Lyme moms, Linda Moresco, who asked if, what is the best treatment for neurological Lyme? Many of us suffer from neurological Lyme in one way or another. How do you handle those patients when they come in and see you and say they've been suffering for years with a variety of neural Lyme symptoms? What is your first course of action with those patients? Uh, um, you know, there's, again, there's not necessarily a particular uh, protocol or algorithm that I use. It's going to be case by case and individualized, but I, I typically will, use oral medications or herbs. I will use intravenous support like ozone or uh, phosphatidylcholine or NAD to help the system. I don't typically have to go to IV antibiotics, which have benefit, but also have their own set of risks involved as well. So if I can avoid them, I will. Um, but sometimes with some of the deeper neurological stuff, you have to go to the IV antibiotics. So those are options for people to um, we also just started using microcurrent neurofeedback, which is doing so many cool things to detox the brain and really start to move those toxins out of the brain in ways that I've never seen anything else really get to that. So I'm really excited to have that as an option for people too. So yeah, you have to hit it on different fronts with the neurological stuff for sure. It's come. Yeah. So Dr. Kelly, our next question comes from the land down under. Uh, you're, you're attracting questions from Australia. So uh, Alexandra Cross asks, so what is the best treatment for chronic rickettsia? Ooh, chronic rickettsia. A lot of the same herbs um, and medications that treat Lyme will also treat rickettsia. So um, medication-wise, doxycycline, minocycline are kind of the top two for, those or for, for that infection. Um, but a lot of the same herbs. Um, like Japanese knotweed, cat's claw, uh, things that help Lyme will also help the rickettsia. So the next question, Dr. Casey, is coming from Lindsay Hartung, who asks, what are some herbals that can help with joint and muscle pain, which are very common for most people with Lyme disease? Do you have a specific herbal regimen and maybe a particular brand you'd recommend for those people? 
joint pain is one of the hardest things to treat, honestly. So there's not an amazing, wonderful, this always helps people's joint pain. But I do like uh, SPM, so specialized pro-resolving mediators, which come from fish oil. Uh, Metagenics has a good one called SPM Active. It's an anti-inflammatory that can really help. Uh, Boswellia is another one, and there's a particular form called ACBA, A-K-B-A, that can help with joint pain. Um, sometimes we'll use some white willow bark, which is a salicylic acid where we get aspirin from. That can help too. And then joint support things, collagen builders, collagen peptides, or glucosamine conjoin MSM. There's a great product called Synovix Recovery from Zymogen to help support the joints as long as you don't have any allergic to shellfish, allergy to shellfish. Dr. Kelly, our next question comes from Greta Ferguson, and she's asking, can you heal from Lyme while on immunosuppressants? Yes, yes. You know, I do have a handful of patients that come in. They have um, a prior diagnosis of MS. They're on immunosuppressants for that. I have a couple patients with myasthenia gravis that are on immunosuppressants for that as well. Um, and we can still make a whole lot of progress. It can There can be kind of a tricky point where, you know, trying to – keep that autoimmune part suppressed while also building up the infectious fighting part of the immune system can get to, to be a little tricky, but usually where we can at least get them to is where we can reduce their dose of the immunosuppressants over time, where they're not getting their injections as often, for example, um, or they're getting lower doses over time. So in all of that's just going to reduce the side effects and risks of those treatments. So that's a win. Yeah. So can you, and this is just my follow-up, um, is the goal when you're treating someone who's suffering from chronic Lyme disease to just reduce the microbload with the antibiotics and the herbs and then build up the immune system? And if that's what you're doing, how can you balance that when somebody is on, on an immunosuppressant protocol? Right. It's tricky. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, uh, this is the stuff that keeps me up at night. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think at the end of the day, remission is a much better word for cure. Um, I've started to to really think about like rehabilitation as a word for all of this too, and rehabilitating your immune system and rehabilitating your system and your mitochondria as part of the process. And so I don't focus as much on eliminating every single last barricade from your system because I feel like that's futile and not necessarily where we should be focused. So then, yeah, at the end of the day, it comes about how do we balance the system? How do we get your immune system so strong that it can take care of these things for you? And then how do we keep you well from there? And again, it's a balancing act, but the immune system is for better or worse, not just a teeter totter. It's like 17 spokes all trying to balance. <laughs> so if some of it are a little suppressed, you can kind of help support other aspects of it to, to get to a better balancing spot. Dr. Kelly, the next questions are, are the next couple of questions are sort of related from various people in the community. But the first one is from Jenna Smith, and she wanted to learn more about Lyme and pandas. But first, can you just for everybody listening describe what pandas is for everybody? Pandas, and I, I'm probably going to um, butcher the acronym, but it's a pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric syndrome that is caused by strep bacteria. There's also PANS, which is more generic because it doesn't have to be caused by strep. It can be caused by numerous different infections. And these kids, um, it's typically in children, although it can present in adults as well, will be fine one day and, for example, get strep throat. And then they develop uh, tics, T-I-C-S, so like tics um, and OCD behaviors and extreme mood differences and just become completely different kids. You know, their parents have no idea what happened to their child. Um, and Lyme is implicated in these um, these neuropsychiatric reactions that happen to infections as well. So it kind of can go into that PANS bucket versus the, the PANDAS, but they're essentially the same thing, just different driving forces. Was there a second part to that? Did I forget yeah. it? <laughs> so the, the other one was as a follow-up. They wanted to know, and you kind of hit on this with, with PANS and PANDAS, but the follow-up was, if you can describe first also what is what POTS is for everybody listening, and then we'll get into the specific question about okay. all three. Yeah. Got it. Thank you. So POTS is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, and that is an autonomic nervous system dysfunction. So typically when you stand up, your body pays attention and knows all of the cues almost before you do, and it can regulate your blood pressure and your heart rate to account for gravity and the changes in gravity. 
so that you don't feel dizzy when you stand up and, you know, can kind of go off, can stand right up and kind of run off. But with POTS, that is dysregulated. And people will typically have trouble um, with passing out or fainting or feeling lightheaded, especially when they stand up. Their heart will race 120 150 beats, um, sometimes but sitting, but often just, just by standing. And the longer they stand, the worse it gets. Um, swelling in their feet, brain fog, mood swings, changes. Um, and it, um, there are a, a lot of different things that ha- are driving to kind of create pots in people. But Bartonella and, and Lyme tend to be two big, big drivers for that. So, so Dr. Kelly, I'd like to follow up with that. So neurological Lyme can show up physiologically with, with something like POTS, but then it, it could also show up emotionally. So can you talk about the difference between the two and why they will present differently, even though it is neurological? Mm-hmm. <sighs> well, everybody's body is, is so different that some people are going to get their symptoms in one way or another. So whether it's, uh, you know, a weakness in your system and that's where it shows up, you know, who knows necessarily. I'm a POTS person. I had POTS for years so I can highly resonate with POTS. Um, but, you know, these, the, these infections are going to manifest differently in different people. And so some people will come in and all of a sudden it's just this new severe anxiety. That's it. That's their only new symptom that they have. They can't control it. It doesn't make sense to them. They've never had anxiety before, but that's their symptom. Some people come in with just joint pain and swelling that migrates and moves around. And so just there's so many different interesting pieces parts to our human body where these things where these infections like to irritate and feed off of and 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 drive change in that it can it can manifest in the neurological system as numbness or tingling it can manifest as mood changes it can manifest as brain fog and cognitive changes and headaches and it can manifest as this autonomic nervous dysfunction it can manifest as all of the above (laughs) it can be kind of a big smorgasbord of everything in there too. Um, yeah. So one of the questions that's coming up on, on the chat is whether or not POTS can be cured or, or is it something that just has to be managed? Living proof. I think POTS can be cured. Um, I, it's an afterthought for me. I don't consider myself to have POTS anymore. Um, so yeah, absolutely. It can be tough. It can be tricky, but yeah, it can get there. So from our, our experiences with our podcast, we've had many guests who have had severe POTS and have overcome it with proper treatment for their Lyme disease, which is sort of a segue into the next question, which is, again, a combination from Jenna Smith and the movement then asking, how do you tell if, if POTS is from Lyme disease or potentially mold exposure? And how do you know which one to treat? It seems to be a very sort of delicate balance. Is it mold? Is it Lyme? And which one should we hit first? Is it both, right? Yes. Yes. And it's not just POTS. There's so many things that overlap between the two. And there's a lot of conventional wisdom, if you will, in the Lyme community, in the mold community that you deal with the mold first. I will tell you, I have some patients where I've tried to deal with the mold first and that didn't get them better. And when I finally treated them for the Lyme, they got better. So I don't think there's a particular hard and fast line here, but that's part of my job. And when I'm doing all of that immune testing, you know, a typical patient comes in and I do 20, 24 vials of blood and just all kinds of nonsense. But I'm trying to get that pattern. I'm trying to discern, and from their history, as well as their physical symptoms, you know, is this more mold? Is this more Lyme? Is this more Babesia? What is the driver? What seems to be the biggest one right now? And how do we deal with that? And then how do we be flexible and adjust and get the next thing and then the next thing or go, you know, stop when we're not getting forward motion and go to something else? Um, so it's, it's often all of the above is the answer. It's, is it, is it Lyme? Is it mold? Yes. (laughs) Right. So you have to kind of deal with all of it and juggle all of it at the same time. And I think that's what really, really hard for Lyme patients too, and their caregivers, because there's so many things then to balance and juggle. And even just what time of day do I take my supplements? Right. How do I fit that in? How do, when do I take my charcoal? When do I take my antibiotics? It's, uh, you know, it's, it's mind boggling, especially when you don't feel well, especially when your brain's not working. It's, it's rough. It's really hard. This is sort of related to a question we get often about people saying, I don't want to pay for all these tests. You know, I I've spent enough money as it is, but what you're articulating is that you use data to make decisions on treatment. So you run a variety of blood tests. You do a whole bunch of tests to make the best decision for the first treatment protocol. 
to not have to further extend the treatment time period for this patient. So it sounds like you're, you're arguing that it's worth spending the money up front because it will shorten the time frame for their, for their healing protocol. Is that, is that an accurate interpretation of what your belief is as a Lyme letter doctor? Yes, but a lot of the labs that I do are insurance-based. So a lot of the labs and on those immune markers I'm talking about, I can bill through insurance. So that helps offset a large amount of the cost. Um, and then I try, personally, I try really hard to keep the out-of-pocket expenses for testing to the lowest amount that I, I think I need. Like, I really need this test. It's going to help me figure out how to treat you better. That's what I'm using the testing for. I'm not just doing, you know, $5,000 worth of tests on everybody for fun. It's very, how is this test going to help me help you? And if it is, then, then let's do it. There's a, I'm sorry, but there's a comment here I just want to address. And somebody's asking if, you, if your office accepts insurance. And, um, you know, if you could address that, I know many Lyme litter specialists don't. And there's a very good reason why they don't accept insurance. Yeah, unfortunately, we are out of network with insurance. And we do help try to find some different creative ways to help, you know, get um, insurance involved. But the biggest thing is the time. I, I spend 90 minutes with patients at their first visit. There's no way insurance will cover that. And in order to really get you better faster, to really make an impact, you need to take that time. I need to be able to spend that time with you to learn about you, to figure out what makes your body work and, and not work and how do we get that better. And so with the whole goal of getting people better faster, but that time constraint is a big problem because insurance just really doesn't cover it. They don't cover integrative medicine. And so that's why we've chosen to, to stay out of that, out of that insurance right. game. Dr. Kelly, I think you're being really kind. I mean, I think there's another piece of the insurance equation and the other piece of the insurance equation is insurance companies are not only going to limit the amount of time your doctor can spend with you, but the insurance companies are also going to limit the type of protocols you're going to be able to utilize. Unfortunately, many of the treatments that we need in the Lyme community are just simply not going to be approved by insurance companies. And there are a lot of different reasons why that's the case. I want to urge everyone to listen to our podcast that we, that we did today, which will be released in a week with Dr. McDonald, because he talks a lot about what insurance companies have done and why they're doing what they're doing. And unfortunately, there are many, many issues that insurance companies create that make it almost impossible to heal from Lyme when the only treatment protocols are going to be approved by insurance companies. So, Dr. Kelly, I'm going to ask you another question now. We're moving in another direction, which is about MCAS. Can you first define MCAS? Mast cell activation syndrome. Mast cells are the cells that secrete histamine, as well as multiple other inflammatory cytokines. And we think of histamine with allergies. So you think typically histamine, runny nose, itchy eyes, the works. That's, that is histamine. But histamine can cause all kinds of other issues too, including dysmenorrhea, nausea, motion sickness, hives, brain fog, all of these other symptoms. And what can happen with a chronic infection or toxins or even hormone changes is these mast cells forget to turn off essentially. So they always are running and causing more and more and more inflammation in your system. And there's a, you know, a broad spectrum. It's actually, um, it can go all the way towards a cancerous side too called mastocytosis. Um, but it's one extra layer of that immune system dysfunction that happens with these chronic infections that needs to be managed. So mast cell will become essentially a storm. Can you, can you distinguish a mast cell storm from a cytokine storm? I know you've spent a lot of time developing um, articles on, on cytokine storms and, and the role they play in Lyme and the end COVID. So can you, can you distinguish the two for us? Not necessarily, because they're all in the one. It's, you know, kind of an umbrella term, because there's a lot of different cytokines that your body creates. They're little chemical signals and some of them can be good, but a lot of them are very inflammatory, but it's in the way that your body's saying, come help me. There's an infection here. There's something happening. I need to fix it. The problem where it is it can go unchecked and cause a massive cytokine storm. And that's where people really get into trouble with say COVID. Um, and that's where people can get really, really, really sick when their body just, you know, it's just off the deep end and they can't stop that inflammation. Um, but um, where about uh, so? There are a couple labs that you can kind of differentiate and try to figure out what cytokines are happening or what things are happening. But when it comes to mast cells in particular, 
it's really pretty easy to get a false negative test on those labs, especially if you're not in the middle of a flare of your mast cells, because they will kind of come and go even <laughs> themselves. They'll be on, but then they can be even more on, you know, in secretion. So if you don't catch it at the exact right second, you can get a falsely negative test. So it's, it, it can be very challenging and tricky to, to get blood work on that. So I tend to treat mast cell dysfunction mostly clinically with symptoms. One of the things we've seen in our podcast is folks who are suffering from uh, mast cell activation system is they, they, they also become uh, emotionally concerned about the treatment protocols that being given by their doctors because they're afraid they're going to have uh, a response to the treatment protocols, which then caused them to be, you know, in many cases, frozen and not going forward with taking the treatment recommendations. How do you deal with that in your practice? Yeah, I think it's fair because, an, you know, Herxheimer reaction, we know well in the Lyme community is where you can feel worse before you feel better when you start a treatment. And that Herxheimer reaction at its core is a cytokine storm. So it's all these cytokines, right? Again, again. So yeah, if you're already in a living constantly in a cytokine storm, perpetual inflammation, you add more fuel to that fire, that's hard, right? It's good. That's, you know, where we can really kind of go off the deep end. So two things. One, I will do everything in my power to calm down the inflammation and support calming that cytokine storm, supporting detox, make sure your system is able to, to clear these things out. And two, we'll go really, really slowly. So I have, you know, what that's the benefit of herbs, for example, with these chronic infections is you can get them in a tincture form and I can start with a drop. I can start with a drop every couple days, you know, if we need to. You can put a drop in some water and then drink a fourth of the water and get a fourth of a drop. You know, we can go really, really slowly if we need to. And we listen to your body. And if you increase those drops and you just can't handle it, we decrease the drops. We make sure we're really supporting the lowering of the inflammation and the calming of the cytokine storm and detox. And then we try again to, to go up. So it, it's really just important that we, and, but it's important to have that conversation with your provider. You know, I'm very sensitive to things. Everything sets me off. You know, I'm afraid to move forward, you know, then, you know, work through a plan of how to start slow and then what tools you can use to help yourself through the process. Matt, before you ask the next question, I just want to make sure that I recognize the movement then for asking the MCAS questions. Yes, the movement then asked the MCAS question. And I also want to point out that the Alex Hudson Lyme Foundation is a great resource for anything MCAS related. They've done a lot of research and that's become their passion. So that's another great resource for everybody to check out if they want to learn more about mast cell activation syndrome. And the, the next question, Dr. Kelly, is a little more specific from Amanda Falls. And she wants to know, how do you address Lyme and uh, how do you address Lyme and mold when you have hormone imbalance and ovarian failure and are sensitive to medication? If you have all these things going on, what are your options? Yeah, go low and go slow um, because they're all. It's kind of you know what's the chicken and what's the egg, right? What's driving this? And it it can be tricky because it it just all feeds itself, right? Because chronic toxins also cause hormone dysfunction which can make it harder to get rid of toxins, which, you know, so it all balances out. Um, I typically don't tend to go early when it comes to hormone treatment. I will support hormone detox, but I don't necessarily, necessarily give hormone replacement early on in treatment because as you treat the infections, as you treat the toxins, the hormones tend to get better. But if hormones are really, really big, you may have to. Um, or I recommend acupuncture. Acupuncture is great. I've never seen anything work better for hormone balance than acupuncture. I've seen acupuncturists get women with premature ovarian, ovarian failure pregnant because they did, that's not really what they had, you know? Um, so I, I would absolutely add that to the mix. Find a really good or a hormone supporting acupuncturist to help in that process as, as part of your team, as part of your healthcare team. So Dr. Kelly, next question comes from Jenny D. And she asks, are there flares that are exclusively psychological? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and and it, can, it, can, it can be scary because if you already have some suicidal ideations, for example, or some suicidal thoughts, it can cross over and people can get very scarily suicidal. So that's always a conversation you have to have when people um, have anything related to that. Like if this is worse, if that gets worse, you have to call me, you have to call, call your care. Like, you know, we have, like, this is real. We have to talk about this. Um, I've also seen, you know, just like 
overwhelming amounts of like emotion as a Herx crying, sobbing, can't control myself. Where is this all coming from over this? You know, I stubbed my toe or something. It didn't seem to be warranted. And then later on, Oh, that was a Herx, you know? So absolutely. Yeah. hundred percent. That can be a Herx. So one of the things I want to share with uh, folks is that uh, when I worked with you, Dr. Kelly, you actually have a, a wonderful portal that is full of information. And the portal on herxing and the portal on detoxing is just fantastic. Unfortunately, when I did herx, I still wasn't ready for it. So it is one of the things <laughs> that uh, I, I do want. I do want to compliment you and your and your practice for the information that you provide. But it is just very different than you'd so, expect. Uh, I have to interrupt there real quick because. Rich was on an herbal protocol and he secretly didn't tell me until afterwards he was on it. He was herxing, didn't know he was herxing, and he threw out all the herbs. And then two days later, his law secretary told him, you're herxing. How do you not know that? And he's like, oh, I was herxing. <laughs> so <laughs> it is something that is normal. And granted, Rich did go pretty aggressively with that protocol, but it is something that people should expect. And I know, Dr. Kelly, mm -hmm. you provide a, lot, provide a lot of resources to help people through that. Mm -hmm. and, you, and Johanna just did provide a comment here in the chat saying that, Psychological herxes can be so scary. So what advice or how do you work with your patients when they do have these scary psychological herxes? Are there things you can give them to help calm that down? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And Rich, I usually recommend people kind of slap my detox, you know, hand out on their fridge. <laughs> and I'm always telling the caregivers, look, when they're in the middle of this, they're not going to realize it. They're not going to know that there's things that can help. Like you need to help them. You need to encourage them to maybe go take an Epsom salt bath, right? <laughs> Direct them towards an, an Epsom salt bath because, I mean, it, it happens to all of us. You're in the middle of it. You just feel crummy and you don't know why. And when you feel crummy, you don't really think, oh, yeah, this could be a herx until you kind of become an expert on it. And then, then you start to really pick up on your own clues as to what your herxing is. Um, uh, so great psychological herx support. So an Epsom salt bath is wonderful. You know, a couple of candles, some lavender, essential oil, two cups or more of Epsom salt in your bathtub and just kind of let it go and cry or, or whatever you need to do to get it out can, can really do wonders. But supporting detox will help with all of these things too, charcoal, glutathione. Um, I like SPM active, like I mentioned before, to just kind of lower inflammation not just for pain, but for other um, uh, herxing as well. Uh, Berber panella is actually a good herbal combination that's really great for neurological herxing and psychological is neurological herxing. So that, and you can use 20 drops of that every 20 minutes for eight doses or so if you really need to. There's lots of tips out there. You just, just got to remember to use them. Yeah, when you're going through it. We're getting a ton of comments here in the chat. I've been writing a ton down. And one that's related is from Rachel Barnes who asked if, is it possible to be on binders for too long? Or is it acceptable to be on binders long-term? And if so, will these binders help with Lyme and co-infections too? Or are they really disaffective in helping bind the toxins and rid the toxins from your body? Yeah, they're much more like sponges. Think of them as little sponges that help to just kind of be a reservoir for the toxins so that you can quite literally flush them down the toilet and say goodbye, right? Um, there is definitely... Uh, some theory, theoretical, you know, talk that if you're on binders for too long, it will bind up all the good stuff too. So you can lose some of your minerals or, or other good things in your system. And that's definitely a, definitely a, a possibility that that could happen. So if we're going to use binders for a long time, we'll often use um, some trace minerals or mineral supplements, multivitamins, things to just make sure you're replacing um, what, what is being lost in that process. Um, and, you know, make sure they're helping too. So if they're not helping to lower your lab numbers or make you feel better, and especially if they're causing symptoms like constipation or other things too, talk to your doctor, maybe that's not the right binder, or maybe you have to try something else. There's some other fibers um, or different kinds of binders out there too that you can use uh, to help support your system. Dr. Kelly, the Joyful Fork just put a comment up asking, uh, what do you do if you do not tolerate charcoal or glutathione? And Kathy, as it is, responded with the helpful comment that uh, bentonite clay is a tool that she's using. So can you comment on, on folks who are having challenges with charcoal and glutathione and, uh, mm -hmm. and how um, helpful is bentonite clay in your experience? Okay, so multiple things to unpack there. Glutathione is a sulfur-based 
antioxidants. Your body's most potent antioxidant and detoxifier. Some people have issues with sulfur. So you could be having issues with glutathione because you also don't tolerate sulfur, which um, is its, its own separate talk, if you will. But uh, garlic, eggs, onion, those are also very sulfury containing things. So if you can't tolerate any of those things, you may have a sulfur issue. The other part of this is anytime you push detox too much, you can also kind of have a Herx-like reaction. Too much movement of the toxins can make you feel unwell as you're clearing them out. So if you're responding really strongly to detox, it could be because you really, really need to detox. You just have to go slower, right? Um, charcoal, you know, every binder is a little different, but there are multiple binders out there. There are sprays that you can put under your tongue that are more uh, liposomal or nano particles, which can be easier on the gut sometimes. Zeolite clay um, comes in that form. Bentonite clay is great. You just have to be careful because it can be high in um, metals and other um, toxins. You just have to make sure it's really coming from a good, reliable, clean source. Um, what else are there? Um, I use a very specific fiber, OptiFibroLean from Zymogen. There are, um, you know, pectin, there's silica, there's, there's all kinds of binders out there. So if one isn't working for you, we can, you can try another one or maybe just pause on binders for a while and come back to them later. So there's some really so good questions. I'm sorry, I'm Matt, that's the next question. Uh, Ms. Julia Smoke is asking uh, Mrs. Julia Smoke, are we going to be saving this live? And, and one of the things I want to share with everyone is we are going to be saving it live. We're also going to be converting this into a podcast. We don't let the gold from Dr. Kelly go into the ether. We save right. it. So this is actually the first time we're going to have a podcast, which is not a long-form interview because we think so highly of, of Dr. Kelly. And we're also going to turn this into a transcript. So if you email us, we'll send you a transcript. So if your notes are not as complete as you want them to be, we will have a, not a perfect transcript because we transcribed from um, Otter, but you'll, have, uh, you'll be able to have some notes from us as well. So, uh, Matt, I'm sorry, you can ask the next question. Yep, so we have some really good questions. I want to circle back to one we got earlier on from Nancy. She said that she's, she's been suffering with Lyme for almost three decades. And at that point, will antibiotics really be effective? Is that an effective treatment? Or should she look at something more alternative, like, a, like an herbal treat, uh, protocol at that point? That, I mean, that's a great question. I, I've definitely treated chronic Lyme with antibiotics before. But typically, even after that, you have to go to herbs. So not a bad idea to just kind of jump to the herbs. Um, it's, you know, but if the herbs aren't working, you have to try different herbs or, or antibiotics. You just have to kind of play it, play with it a little bit. Um, but yes, I mean, there are still two aspects of this. You still have to get the infections down. You still have to get them in a manageable form. You still have to try to attack them and clear them out of your system to the fullest extent that you can. And then on the flip side, trying to balance that immune system and, and, and get that to reset as well. There was a related question from Cindy that asked, can you be on herbs and antibiotics at the same time? Because she's mm -hmm. concerned about her, her immune health and, her, and gut dysbiosis. So as a Lyme litter professional, are you, do you prescribe antibiotics and herbs at the same time? Is that a safe protocol? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes, absolutely. But it, you know, it depends on the herbs and the medications. You have to know about interactions and, and what can and can't go together. But yeah, you can absolutely mix and match. Right, Kelly, there's another question about, or several questions about the use of alcohol with Lyme. And uh, one question I saw earlier, and I'm old and don't know how to use Instagram Live, but uh, <laughs> as I saw the question coming through, there was uh, some question about why, why one glass of alcohol was making this person sick for as long as a week. And, and a follow-up question, which is up right now, is uh, should, uh, should people with Lyme disease stay away from alcohol forever? Or is there something that can be done so that they can enjoy that type of... Uh, uh, social lubricant. Yes. Well, I've been known to enjoy a glass of wine or two myself. So I'm, you know, hard be it for me to say, stay away from alcohol together, but there's a couple of things to unpack here too. So alcohol actually breaks down into histamine. And so if you have trouble with alcohol, if you have one glass of alcohol and you were hungover for days, you may actually have a mast cell issue. So that can be a big sign that there's a mast cell problem in your system Two, alcohol is really hard on your liver. And so if you're really toxic, and you're full of toxins and you're hurting like crazy, alcohol is just going to make it so much harder for your body to process that and clear out the toxins that it's best to just avoid it as your system is healing and repairing. 
um, or and or tread very lightly, right? You know, drinking heavily is going to make it impossible for your liver to process all of these things. So that is obviously not recommended. But if you get to a place where you're feeling stronger, you're healing, you're not having a big hangover reaction for for four days, then you 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 could you could probably imbibe with a drink here or there and be fine. But it just really depends on your system. But again, that's it can be a really interesting clue into mast cell problems. So we have a, another good question coming in from Chuck Pressler, who he said he's been sick with Lyme for chronic Lyme for a long time, and there's nobody locally who can help him. But I do, I just want to do, I want to point out that you do um, provide virtual consults as well, Dr. Casey, right? I do. Yeah, it really depends on the state you're in, and every state's a little different. I have several different state licenses, and and for better or for worse, that's you know one of the things that COVID has really opened up to doctors and generals that telemedicine is is real and it's here to stay. And so, you know it's allowed us at Case Integrative Health to really expand our boundaries and help more people, which is fantastic. So give us a call. We'll check it out. Um, gosh, am I going to remember our number? Seven seven three six seven five one four zero zero. I remembered yep. it. He also did want to know, Dr. Kelly, if, um, and, I, and I know he's calling you Dr. Casey, you're Dr. Casey Kelly, for everybody listening, <laughs> calling you two, two different names. So <laughs> explain that. It's case but, integrative too, Matt, so you can forgive yourself. Yeah, that, uh, that, that's, that's a good, good line brain answer there. So he wants to know, is it possible to actually get better once you develop chronic Lyme? Is there hope? Should he even bother? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I just gave a webinar yesterday and I was using a, a case study of a patient that I met in 2015 and she'd been sick since she was a little girl. She, she actually, her, her dad ran a summer camp. So she, she got sick when she was little. We're sure we're certain of it. Um, but I just recently, a couple months ago, got to drop a disco ball and celebrate her coming fully around. She feels wonderful. So at our office, we really celebrate those wins. We literally drop a disco ball and we take a picture. We turn their pin on our map to a disco ball pin. Um, and it just goes to show you that I think she's a great, great uh, example. I've been working with her for seven years, right? So we've been through it all. We've been through antibiotics. We've been through herbs. We've been through IVs. We've been through parasite cleanses and metal cleanses and mold detox all of it. And just year after year after year, we've just gotten her better and better and kind of erased, you know, pulling back on all these layers of her health. And she's, she's a disco ball now, seven years later. So don't give up hope. It is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It really depends on how long you've been sick, how many things you were sick with, you know, your stress in your life, your support in your life, all of these things matter, but you can get better. And focus on that. Focus on what it's going to feel like when you're better. And, and really try to, to, to think about that and embrace that. It, that's a huge part of the healing. Dr. Kelly, we're getting some questions in and some comments on the MTHFR mutation. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I'm going to ask a follow-up question because this is something I we, we keep seeing as a pattern in our podcast. Yeah, sure. It has a really nasty nickname, which I won't say, the MTHFR gene. Um, but it kind of stands for something, if you will. <laughs> Read between the lines, yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. um, so this one, I mean, this gets a lot, of um, a lot of press, if you will. So this is related to methylation. So MTHFR gene um, is a particular part of methylation. And methylation is one of the ways, really, that we turn our DNA on and off. So it's our ways to kind of turn our genes on, make proteins and, and whatever. And it plays a big role in detox. It plays a big role in mood. There's a lot to methylation. It is a huge process. And the MTHFR gene part of it is one tiny little dot in the center of it. So if you have trouble, if you have what's called a SNP, which is a single nucleotide polymorphism, which is not necessarily you know, an abnormality. These things are very, very normal for us to have some changes in these, in these SNPs for methylation and other genetics. You can have an extra special hard time detoxing. So if you have an extra special hard time detoxing with relation to MTHFR, B vitamins, especially B12 and folate can be especially helpful for you in the methylated form. Your body's not going to be able to break them down as well so taking folic acid is not nearly as useful as taking methyl folate. And taking methylcobalamin or methyl B12 is going to be better for you than cyanocobalamin, which is in a lot of cheaper multivitamins and cheaper vitamins that are out there. So um, it's a piece part of the puzzle. I don't think 
I, I think sometimes it gets a lot of, of heavy weight in it. You know, just because you have an abnormality in this doesn't mean you have methylation issues necessarily because it's a big, different chemical pro process. But it's a piece part of the puzzle. And um, it's worth evaluating and seeing if that, those, especially if those vitamins can really help your system. And, you know, are there certain things you should avoid or foods or supplements or things of that nature? It plays a role. Genetics is really, really interesting and complex. But epigenetics how we turn our system on and like how our lifestyle affects our genes is in my opinion, more important than the genetics themselves. Um, just because you have genes to develop diabetes doesn't mean you're going to develop diabetes if you eat well and exercise and, and all of those things. So that was a lot, but yeah. <laughs> and, and so, so Matt and I debate this all the time because we've had many, many guests who we've interviewed on our podcast that have had that mutation. And so the, the, the sort of chicken and the egg question is, does, the, does, does Lyme disease trigger the mutation or does the mutation cause you to be more susceptible to chronic Lyme disease when you come in contact with the bacteria? Or I guess the multi-germ infection we define as Lyme disease. Lyme disease, Lyme disease does not cause the genetic mutation. You're born with that, as far as we can tell. That's a, a, just roll of the dice, what, what you are, where you are given. Um, and I have a lot of people that have MTHFR issues who have very little problems with Lyme disease. I have people that have totally normal methylation genes who have a big problem with Lyme disease. Um, like I said, it's a piece part of the puzzle and it can be a big one for you, but it's not necessarily this huge part for everybody. So it's not, you know, I wish it were that cut and dry. If you have this snip, you're going to have a harder time, but it's just, it's, it's more complicated than that. So there's another question here in the chat. I just want to point out in a few minutes if we get cut off, Instagram will cut us off at the one hour mark. So I apologize if we get cut off mid discussion, but uh, the question in the chat is how do you know if you have this mutation and what are the tests for this MTHFR mutation? It's a simple blood test. It's a simple blood test. There's a couple, usually the C6725 or whatever, and then there's an A199, but blah, blah, um, little driver's license that you kind of letters that you can get behind it that you can do through Quest. It's just a blood test. So another question just popped in that um, from Kristen who has neural Lyme and uh, Bartonella and her blood pressure tanks every morning and she gets a massive headache and dizziness. So what supplements or herbs would you recommend for that sort of a pattern in a chronic Lyme patient? Mm -hmm. That sounds kind of potsy. That's, that's very POTS uh, like there, there are medications. Uh, some of my favorite herbs for POTS is uh, licorice. Actually licorice can boost your blood pressure, which in this situation could be very, very helpful, but you do want to monitor it. Um, and salt, lots of salt, um, salt supplements, salt pills, if you need to salty food and compression stockings. Really, really great as we're coming into summer because they're super hot. <laughs> but they can help immensely when you have pots and these kind of balancing issues. So, Dr. Kelly, this is going to be our last question because we do want to sign off without getting cut off. So one of the questions we have here is, can you be deemed to have chronic Lyme disease even though you are not suffering from Lyme for more than a year? Yes. Okay. So with that quick answer, can you please uh, <laughs> let folks know how they can get in touch with you? We are constantly asked how to get in touch with you. So if you let everyone know now, maybe we'll have to answer that question less often. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we are on the web, caseintegrativehealth.com. So our phone number is 773-675-1400. And our team will be more than happy to help you. You can also through our website, you can email us through the website, there's a section down there, or you can email us at support at caseintegrativehealth.com. I certainly want to strongly urge all of our community to work with Dr. Kelly. Having worked with her myself, it's the best money I've ever spent on medical care. So please consider using Dr. Kelly. She is a wonderful doctor. And Dr. Kelly, thank you. And the final question is, are you accepting new patients people are asking? We are, we are. All absolutely. right. Well, we're going to end it before we get kicked off. So Dr. Kelly, thank you so much for your time. And as Rich said, this will be saved to our Instagram stories. And we're also going to put this into a podcast that will be launching on Wednesday as an audio version. Um, so people that were taking notes like I was, they can uh, go back and make sure they didn't miss anything. So thank you again, Dr. Kelly. Thank you, guys. And thank you for all the kind words. I'm, I'm glad you guys are around and doing all the work and that you do to, to spread the awareness. We really appreciate you as well. Thank you. 
And, and we appreciate our entire community for uh, tuning in today. And uh, please uh, continue to follow us on Instagram and stay with our Lime Hackathon. There are wonderful hacks. Dr. Kelly actually put up two great hacks, but we're also getting many, many other hacks. And we'll have 60 by the end of the month. So every day we'll put up at least two new hacks. Thank you for listening to the Tick Boot Camp interview with Dr. Casey Kelly. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Casey Kelly, please visit our Instagram page at Case Integrative Health. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Boot Camp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, if you'd like to have a transcript of this Instagram live interview we did with Dr. Kelly, please go to our website, www.tickbootcamp.com. Give us your email and we will forward you a transcript. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you, as always, for listening.